power hour. Power hour. Coal, wind power, nuclear power, natural gas, solar power, ethanol, oil. Power hour. The show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein, resident fellow at the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights. Welcome to Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. One of the most important but least understood aspects of the energy world is the financial market's relationship to it, specifically the speculators who are not directly involved in the production or consumption of, say, oil, natural gas, and other forms of energy, but who buy and sell these in large quantities in the form of financial instruments like futures and derivatives. The role of speculators, and more broadly, the role of financial markets in energy is is at an all-time high. I'd actually go so so far as to say that if you uh, don't understand the whole phenomenon of speculation, you really can't understand how the world of energy works. Now, there's a lot of talk about speculators, a lot of negative talk. Whenever oil prices go up these days, not only do oil companies get the blame, which is the usual scapegoating, but these mysterious speculators do as well. I read a typical example of this recently in an op-ed piece for the Christian Science Monitors, which said, talking about today's oil prices, quote, speculation in oil markets which has little to do with oil demand and supply, is a key part of the problem, unquote. Unfortunately for all the talk about speculators and speculation, there is very little understanding of what these things actually are. So on today's Power Hour, I'm bringing in an expert on financial markets and speculation, Dr. Eric Dennis. Dr. Dennis was actually trained as a theoretical physicist at Caltech, Princeton, and Santa Barbara, but now works as an executive at a major financial institution, using his mathematical skills to build complex models of financial markets. I've been fortunate enough to know Dr. Dennis for several years now, and he's my go-to person whenever I have a question about speculation and financial markets, since he knows them inside out and he can break them down in plain English, which we always love to have on Power Hour. So with that introduction, we'll bring in Dr. Eric Dennis and pick his brain about speculation on the other side. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues. Joining us now is Dr. Eric Dennis. Eric, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. Let's start at the beginning of this discussion of speculation by defining our terms. What is speculation and what is a speculator? Okay, well, uh, speculation in general is just when someone, uh, usually in the financial markets, uh, predicts some kind of future uh, price for uh, financial assets, in this case, for, for instance, uh, energy commodities like natural gas or oil or something. So someone predicts what the future price is going to be, and he gets into some contract that's such that he's going to benefit if, if his prediction is correct. So um, even buying, for instance, if you think the price of oil is going to go up, you can buy oil right now, or for instance, you can buy what's called a futures contract for oil, which is mechanically kind of easier to do, but you can essentially buy oil and wait, and when the price goes up, you sell it and you make money. That's speculation. Uh, and, and I mean, speculators are often referred to as this uh, you know, cabal of people headquartered in Wall Street and a couple of other places around the world. I mean, 
how many people in the economy are engaging in this kind of speculation? Oh, well, I mean, ultimately, tons and tons of us are. Even if you don't have outright exposure to, for instance, commodity funds or something uh, in your 401k or just in your investments, um, you probably own companies that do have, own the, uh, the stocks of companies that do have that kind of exposure. So it's extremely difficult to disentangle any individual and claim that he's not in any way in his economic life involved in speculation. Now, how do speculators impact the market? I mean, what, what are they doing constructively in the economy? Because we often hear that the markets are just this giant casino and they're somehow doing this independent activity that makes tons and tons of money uh, that's sucked out from the rest of us. Right. Well, well it's, uh, it's probably helpful to think of it in this way. There's, there's a basic problem we have, uh, which is that suppose that um, there were some kind of conditions in the market, say in the market for oil, uh, such that we knew um, that in the future we were going to fa face uh, a substantially diminished supply of the commodity, oil set. Um, the problem would be, without speculation, the problem would be that right now the supply and demand situation of oil is such that we can get it relatively cheaply. And we're using tons and tons of it at this relatively cheap price. If, in, if we knew somehow through some cagey kind of calculation or uh, through some kind of you know, fundament, uh, fundamental analysis of, our, of the supply conditions of oil that in, say, a couple of years, there would be far less oil, then in effect, what we're doing right now is wasting that oil. We're, we're wasting it for uses that um, people are only willing to play, uh, pay uh, a very reduced price. If we knew that it was going to be restricted in supply in the future, um, and therefore we knew that in the future the price was going to go up, way up, what we'd kind of want to do is, in some kind of natural organic way, we'd want to ration it right now so that we could use it for only things that, uh, whose importance is commensurate with what the future supply conditions are going to be. So, so, so in terms of just, just to make that concrete, so what, what are uses that, you know, hypothetically now that, that people would engage in uh, at today's prices that they wouldn't engage in at future prices? Right. So, so suppose, suppose you're fa uh, planning like a family vacation over the summer and you're thinking, how far should I drive? Should I drive, you know, a thousand miles into the interior of the United States um, in order to see some national park that my great aunt told me was fun? Um, or should, should I just limit my trip to say 300 miles uh, because, you know, uh, because say, for instance, the price of gas would be much higher. So if the price of gas were much higher, uh, which is to say that if it rose because we knew that in the future there would be some need to ration it, then that would totally affect all kinds of decisions I make, like how long my, uh, my summer vacation would be. If I had to pay $10 a gallon for gasoline, I wouldn't drive 1,000 miles. I'd only drive maybe 300. So just to be clear on terminology, so rationing we usually associate with a government coercively dictating you can only use so much of this, you can only use so much of that. Uh, I assume here you're talking about something voluntary. Yeah. I, I don't mean it in some sense of some central body getting together and rationing how much of my wealth 
I get to devote to oil. I simply mean the idea that as an economic actor, as someone who's trying to, uh, to find uses for my own wealth, I have to figure out how much it's worth to me to drive 1,000 miles as opposed to driving 300 miles and going to some other um, you know, park in the middle of the US. And that decision about how much it's worth to me uh, is going to be uh, powerfully affected by the price of oil. And the point is that if the supply conditions for oil, if somehow we knew that in the future oil would be much more constrained in its supply than it is now, then we'd want to economize uh, on our use of it, not only in the future, but right now in order to, uh, to prepare for those future conditions. Okay, and, so and the role of speculators um, is to figure that stuff out about the future supply conditions and maybe even the future demand conditions as well, as well if that's something that they can ascertain. And to, in this case, bid up the price of oil right now so we get this uh, kind of benevolent effect of uh, knowing right now that in the future oil is going to be more scarce and I need to economize more on its use even right now. And what that does is it allows us to, uh, to have that burden of economization, to, to have that burden fall more gradually on us than hitting us all of a sudden in a couple of years when the supply really contracts, if in fact that's going to happen, just as an example. So and this seems to fit well into um, analyzing the idea of, of peak oil, which makes a certain claim about how future production of oil will inevitably peak, which we can leave aside that, just say that's a prediction. But it's also the idea that this is inevitably catastrophic, that we as a society will fall off a cliff. And it sounds like part of what speculators do is prevent such cliffs from existing. Exactly. And even if the, uh, the objective conditions are such that there's going to be a reduced supply in the future. What they do to that cliff is they round it out uh, so that the burden of adjusting to that, those new conditions is distributed more gradually over time. And we have a, a greater time to adapt and to think of alternatives or, or substitutes. So in ter- let's, let's make this concrete in terms of the mechanism. How is, how is an, oil, um, you know, an oil speculator on Wall Street having this benevolent effect that you describe in his daily activities? Right. So if, for instance, he thinks that uh, the supply conditions of oil are going to be much tighter in the future, and he gets along, or he, he basically buys some kind of financial contract that is in some sense equivalent to owning oil right now, um, and therefore he bids up the price of oil, um, what he's doing is he's sending, by bidding up that price of oil, if enough speculators with enough money that they want to risk on this, if he actually does that and the price of oil actually goes up right now, usually people kind of assume that this is some terrible thing because we have to pay more for oil. But in fact, what's going on is that by the best judgment of people who actually want to risk their own wealth on it, uh, they judge that the price of oil is going to go up in the future. And instead of having some uh, sharp uh, kind of spike in the price at some future time, he's bidding the price of oil up right now. And when he bids it up right now, what that is, it's, it's a signal sent to everybody who, who uses oil, everybody in the economy who has some kind of financial interest in oil, this is a signal to them to start economizing on, the, on oil right now. And it can go in the opposite direction, right? And, and it does. 
Absolutely. So that if there were some kind of uh, analysis done which suggested that there were additional supplies of oil that were going to come on the market, say there was you know, some big oil find you know, out, in the, out in the Caribbean or something, and speculators then uh, would short oil. They would, uh, they would get involved in some kind of financial contract such that, that would allow them to benefit if the price of oil goes down. That has the natural effect then of actually reducing the current price of oil which is again a signal that's coming out to all the oil users in the economy that says, hey, in the future, oil's not gonna be as scarce as you thought, and therefore you can be a little more liberal about what you use oil for, and you're gonna be able to right now because the price of oil is gonna go down. So this, this association of speculators with higher prices as such, does, does that have any validity to it? No, there, there's no inherent bias in speculation to increase the price of the commodity. It can equally be decreased by speculation. And in fact, the, uh, some of the instruments uh, that are kind of uh, most criticized when, uh, this is usually in the stock market now, but it, it can equally be true in the in commodities markets, including the energy commodities. Um, frequently there's criticism of people who short uh, financial assets, who go short them and therefore reduce their price. Um, and, and so we kind of have this pincer effect in the criticisms of, uh, of speculation in that we're both being criticized uh, when we bid prices up in the case of commodities and sometimes when we bid prices down, more, uh, more usually in the case of equities. But um, one could imagine the same kinds of criticisms in commodities markets under certain circumstances. So if, if we have, I mean, uh, it seems like one can think of speculators, tell me if I'm, I'm wrong here, as a, as a kind of messenger. They're sending us a message about the future, assuming, assuming they're right. And we'll talk in a second about what, you know, what if they're wrong. So if, if um, they're driving prices up, it's telling us uh, you know, supply is decreasing relative to demand. And then that, because the price goes up, that's an incentive, at least long term, to people to drill more. And then if people drill more, or let's say governments start freeing up oil deposits that are right now restricted, such as those in Alaska and the Outer Continental Shelf, those, those same speculators will drive prices down, sending us a signal, okay, now it's, it's okay to consume oil for even more valuable uses because it will be available unlike the way it was before. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate, and, and that emphasizes something I didn't mention before, which is that the signal that's being sent out by speculators through the price of the commodity as it's affected by the financial contracts that they get involved with, that signal is affecting not only consumers, uh, telling consumers relatively how much they should economize on the commodity, but it's also telling producers. And, and that's a vital function that speculation serves in both cases, in the case where uh, the, the supply is going to be diminished in the future and in the case where the supply is going to be increased in the future. Can you talk about the, the, the types of knowledge that speculators get? Because I want to, going back to this casino analogy that people use, it's as if they're just randomly gambling. But my sense from talking to different people is that uh, some of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met about the oil industry are the speculators. Right, and that's absolutely no, uh, no surprise because in general... Uh, in, the, in the context of human activity, you find that the people who know most are the people who have the most exposure to the subject matter, the most financial risk or, or any kind of risk associated with the subject. So someone's who, someone who's going to be hurt 
uh, by the price of oil going up or by the price of oil going down or doing whatever it does, or someone who stands to benefit, um, those are the types of people who are going to have an incentive to know about those things. And those are the types of people who are going to do really massive amounts of research on seemingly arcane little aspects of these markets uh, because they actually have a dog in the hunt. And so it's not surprising at all that speculators are frequently the ones who are most knowledgeable um, about a given subject, and not only most knowledgeable, but most tested in the sense that they're constantly testing themselves against the actual facts as they come out. So we're, t we're talking about how speculators are, are forward-looking, but of course they're not, they're not going to be guaranteed to be right. I mean, they can do a lot of research, but they can be, be wrong. And one uh, th this is often a common claim made today by politicians. They say, well, the supply and demand conditions don't really justify today's oil prices. And when it's coming from politicians, one can regard it as pretty much a joke. But they're also intelligent individuals who will say, yeah, I think there's a, a th there's a these prices are being driven up um, by speculation more than the future will actually bear out. For example, we had uh, on the second episode of Power Hour uh, a gentleman named Michael Lynch, who's a, a very prestigious oil forecaster, and his view was that uh, today's speculators buy too much into this idea of peak oil. They don't fully appreciate uh, how much oil there is and, and how economic incentives will start to increase production and drive down prices. What do you say to people who say to you, well, how, you know, what if speculators are wrong? Shouldn't, you know, aren't they then not doing their job? Well, it's certainly, it's certainly the case that speculators in a given market at a given time can be wrong. In fact, your, uh, your guest, Michael uh, Lynch, may in fact be right for all I know. So as far as, as, far as speculators being, being wrong and that being a justification often for, for intervening against them. Right. Um, so we, we face with speculators, we, we face with these markets, uh, which... Uh, are inherently in the situation where they depend on a large amount of uncertain things that are going to be revealed in the future. We're always facing uh, competing experts. So one expert may have one view, another expert may have another view. Um, the beauty of, of the markets and how they organize this information is people who are willing to put their own wealth or the wealth of their investors on the line get a say in uh, how much the prices of the various financial contracts and the, the commodities themselves are pushed around. They get a say that's proportionate to how much they're willing to put on the line uh, in making these predictions. Uh, and I guess one of the implications of that is overall that's going to lead to more more rational outcomes because it's, it's not just random bystanders, it's people who have, um, who are putting their money in and thus who have much more time-tested judgment and much more incentive to be right. Exactly. Now, one aspect of this uh, that we haven't covered yet is just the issue of the right of people to engage in this behavior. Often what I'll hear is that it's somehow illegitimate for someone at a Wall Street firm to buy and sell oil, you know, present or future, because he's not really going to, he's not producing the oil and he's not consuming it. So he's just dealing in these paper barrels and why should he be able to do that and manipulate the prices the rest of us uh, are paying? Can you talk about the morality of that? Uh, yeah, sure. So what he's doing is he's essentially making a bet with someone. 
Now, that bet could be made uh, with a counterparty who's actually someone who, and this is, this is an essential thing to know about speculation, that there's an offsetting function uh, which, which speculators um, uh, are involved in, and, and that is the activity of hedging. So the, the speculator is making a bet in the, the, the price of the commodity going in one direction. There's someone who may be making an offsetting bet that the price of the commodity will go in a different direction, and that person may not be doing it for the same kind of reason that the speculator is. That person may be uh, hedging himself, which simply means, for instance, suppose you're an airline uh, and you know you're going to have a demand for oil in the future, um, and you're afraid that the price of oil uh, is going to go up between now and the time that you actually need to buy it and use it. Um, then what you may want to do is make a, a, a bet in these markets um, that the price will in fact go up. Um, and that's one way to hedge yourself that if the price does go up, you will have to pay more for the oil, but you'll get paid out on this bet. Um, and, and so you'll be, your risk will be hedged, will be mitigated uh, by that bet. And the person who takes the other side of that, who allows uh, the, in this case, the airline to hedge himself is precisely the speculator. Um, so while, uh, while part of speculation is simply two, two people with differing views putting on a bet with each other, um, another part of speculation is uh, the interaction of the speculator with the actual producers who have natural exposures to the risk associated with these commodities. And the producers um, are engaging in these kind of mutually beneficial contracts with speculators um, that allow the producers to, to mitigate some of their risk. Um, this, now, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, this is, this is not a trivial thing, right? I mean, this is a huge, huge function of what the whole oil futures market and gas futures market and all, I mean, these... It, it adds a tremendous, tremendous benefit to the entire functioning of the market, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a method by which we can take, uh, the producers can take risk off of their shoulders and give that risk to people who, whose job it is um, to, f uh, to figure out what is the, the cost of that risk and how much, uh, how, really how big is that risk and, and how can you best mitigate that risk? So it's kind of like a division of labor. The airlines are really good at, you know, uh, getting planes and getting people onto planes and getting planes to fly over thousands of miles. Um, they're not necessarily the best at figuring out how to, to uh, you know, um, mitigate the risk of a sudden jump in oil prices. So if, if we kind of allow them to take that risk off of themselves and shift it onto people who can make money by having an advantage at handling that kind of risk, then everybody benefits in the same way that everybody benefits in general under the division of labor. When uh, you, know, you perform your own job, say you're an accountant and you don't have to actually grow your own corn and, and you know, raise your own cattle to have a... a Put together a dinner, you benefit because there's a division of labor that allows to do that allows you to do what you do best. 
Um, it, this, is, this is just another function of these financial markets, which allow speculators to take some of the kind of um, intellectual burden about how to deal with risk, take that off of producers and allow producers to concentrate on what they do best, which is the actual process of production of the goods that they produce. So there's this issue of of uh, their role in the division of labor, and to go back to the to the moral issue, which I think is, is connected to that, part of what they're doing. I mean, they're they're it's it's important to not forget these are individuals buying and selling things using their own money, and so for someone to say you can't buy and sell a product using your own money is a very dubious proposition. I mean, I think it's a completely invalid uh, proposition. And especially because, as I understand it, one of the main reasons people will buy oil and go long on oil, as in, as in they think the future price will go up, is because they think that there's an inflation risk. Uh, what do you think of that as, as part of the oil price today? What's the, what's the evidence or non-evidence for um, an inflation risk being tied to the price of oil? Oh, well, there's little doubt that uh, people who speculate uh, in the oil markets and commodities markets in general, uh, especially nowadays, uh, central to their kind of views on what's going to happen is not merely the state of the individual markets for those commodities, but the overall kind of macroeconomic state, and in particular inflation and how much money various governments are going to print up and therefore uh, how devalued are going to be the currencies, which are always the other side of those financial contracts involved in speculation. So the financial contract is about the price of the commodity in terms of some particular currency. So not only the, the somehow the inherent value of the commodity itself, say it's, it's purchasing power to other goods, there's something besides that that's important, and that's the value of the other side of the contract, the currency itself. And when governments print a bunch of money and, and currencies decrease in purchasing power, the value of the dollar goes down when the Fed prints a bunch of money. That's, uh, you know, an important factor in uh, kind of predicting future commodity prices. And in terms of the evidence that this is something that um, is affecting, you know, actual speculation in these markets, uh, it's pretty clear. I mean, all you have to do is look at particular speculators and investors who are, in effect, acting as speculators, um, guys like Jim Rogers and uh, Mark Faber, who are ve very well-known um, investors who have, you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, in, in, um, that they influence, at least in terms of their uh, investment advice. These guys are explicitly saying things like buy commodities, buy precious metals, and also buy energy commodities, specifically in order to uh, maintain your purchasing power. And, and the reason even commodities like energy commodities like oil or natural gas can be important for hedging against inflation is that these are uh, some of the hard assets that are most liquidly traded in the economy, um, meaning that the, the uh, prices, the, the, the commission you have to pay a broker in order to, to go long or to go short oil is relatively small compared to the commission you might have to pay a broker um, to, to engage in some more obscure commodity transaction 
with a commodity that's much less used in the economy. And so the commodities that are most liquid, that, that are most easy to get into and out of, those are the ones that in particular are going to be used as inflation hedges because one, they're hard assets and two, they're liquid. So when people see uh, the price of oil rising and, and particularly if they see the price of, of futures rising, this that should be one major variable in their head. The government is devaluing the currency or maybe devaluing the currency. Oh, absolutely. Now, it's not a simple question to disentangle the supply and demand situation in a given commodity market um, for that commodity itself with uh, the money side. It's not at all easy to disentangle those things. And you can do things like you can form indices of commodities. So you can take a whole bunch of commodities from precious metals to, to natural gas to agricultural commodities and put them all in one big index um, and, and attempt to pin down kind of the, the general change in the price of this index of commodities. But even that, there, you, you know, you can set the weights of the components of the index differently and get a totally different answer for how much inflation there is. So it's not at all an easy problem to just, quote unquote, look at commodities prices and figure out how much inflation there's going to be. But there's no doubt those markets are critical in assessing uh, what the market regards as the, the kind of expectations of, of future money printing and hence inflation. Well, as someone on the market, I mean, how worrisome do you regard that broader inflationary trend? Uh, you mean as a general proposition right now for, you know, the United States and say Europe? Yeah. Uh, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely on my mind uh, and I'm certainly not unique. I mean, it's, it's been an increasingly recognized issue. Um, I'd say, you know, in the last couple of years, at least, I mean, there, there have always been people who recognized uh, the, the problem of potential future inflation, you know, going way back decades and decades. But um, the, the kind of the recent developments uh, and the kind of straight line trajectory of, uh, of the fiscal situations of the United States and European governments and Japan, these things all suggest that the government, the governments of these countries are spending increasing amounts of money and uh, without uh, being able to collect increasing levels of, of taxes from their citizenry. And historically, one of the main ways that governments have kind of responded um, to that, that buildup in debt is that they've monetized that debt, meaning they've essentially printed money in order to pay their spending. And that printing money is precisely what can bid up commodities prices because people know that hard assets are going to retain their value a lot better than little pieces of paper with uh, government insignias on them. Makes sense. Uh, going back, just a couple of quick uh, questions about speculation um, or actually asking you to counter certain things I hear people argue. So one is I was reading an article recently in the Christian Science Monitor that was not unique, but just emblematic of many of the things that I hear a lot. And one, one proposal it made was, quote, place limits on the number of contracts that traders can hold. The CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, has been considering such a move, but has so far equivocated, perhaps due to differences among its board members or pressure from some on Wall Street. Is that, is that kind of limit justified? Now, in principle, one could imagine uh, 
if these things were not being tampered with by governments that a given uh, commodities exchange or clearinghouse, uh, there may be reasons to place limits on individual investors um, that would need to be determined by actual market participants, namely the, the owners of the, the commodities exchanges. So in principle, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with an exchange placing limits on traders. The problem is when governments get involved, this limit becomes totally arbitrary. And it's not being determined by some rational evaluation of how to best stabilize the exchange and, and, and protect the exchange in times of stress. It's being determined by political arguments and kind of demagoguery about the evil speculators. And by people who have this premise that speculation is just inherently evil and that they therefore want to use any kind of excuse they can in order to curtail it. And when you start with that completely erroneous premise, you're not going to arrive at a set of limits which have any rational relationship uh, with the actual requirements of the exchange. So you favor private exchanges that set their own terms. Exactly. And in principle, if an exchange sets up limits that are too onerous, for instance, there could be competing exchanges that would allow traders um, uh, greater flexibility and traders would prefer that exchange. And simultaneously, if there were an exchange whose limits were too liberal, um, that exchange would, uh, would face greater risk of kind of systemic problems with the exchange in times of economic stress. And that exchange may be more likely to go bust than another exchange, which would uh, which would um, influence you know its subscribers in order to, uh, to go over to a different exchange. And so that kind of market process by which the exchange, which is offering a legitimate economic service, the kind of intermediation of um, uh, you know speculation contracts, uh, that exchange th that. The, the parameters of that service it's offering have to be determined by the market and its pricing has to be determined by the market um, in order to get the most efficient arrangement uh, of that service. And when a government steps in and arbitrarily curtails it or places limits on it, you get ultimately economically inefficient arrangements of the, the service involved, in this case, commodities exchanges. Now, a related thing that I often hear is that these contracts are being traded, quote, too much. They'll say, you know, a futures contract in oil gets traded 45 times between people before it, you know, before you actually get the gasoline at the pump. Is there something inherently wrong with um, a contract being traded more times or something that's inherently driving up the price? No, not at all. And, and there's nothing at all about a single spec, uh, trade that a speculator gets involved in that's somehow biased to push up or push down a price, uh, like we were saying before. And if there's nothing biased in that sense about a single trade, there's nothing biased about 45 of them or 450 of them. It really doesn't matter. In fact, people should really be thanking all of these speculators because all of this activity, what it is, it's people you know, using their own judgment and their own research and their own analysis to try and better figure out what the supply and demand conditions of these commodities are going to be in the future. And all of this exchanging, all of this price discovery about what the right price uh, for these commodities, um, what, what the right price of them is going to be in the future, all of this work is being done for us 
so as to you know round out that potential cliff that may occur in commodity valuations um, were the speculators not there. So there, there's no real basis to put any kind of limit on the, the number of uh, speculative transactions or um, you know, arbitrary limits on the size of, of uh, positions that speculators can take. There's no real justification for that outside of the context of an exchange itself deciding for its own profitability reasons and its own risk reasons um, to, to create those limits. There's, there's no basis for any kind of outside entity to arbitrarily step in on the basis of demagoguery and rhetoric about how evil speculators are and place limits on the functioning of these price-discovering markets. Now, uh, I have a question which is, is related but not exactly on, the, on this topic, and this pertains to the broader is, issue of economic forecasting because a speculator, as, as we're discussing, is someone who engages in forecasting, at least in a particular market, um, and trying to discern its future. Now, we see a lot of what seems to be economic forecasting in today's economy, but in the form of not of evaluating the, the proper price of a given commodity, but of, of really uh, determining what the future makeup of the energy economy should be. For example, there was a, a UN paper uh, released fairly recently that saying that they had a model, and I know you're a modeler, so um, you have expertise on models. No, they had a model saying we could cut fossil fuels 80% by 2050. And it wouldn't be a, a problem. And then there's a Stanford professor, Michael Z. Jacobson, who goes one further and says we can cut fossil fuels 100% by 2050. And they, they claim, well, you know, we have these forecasting uh, mathematical models and they're proven what do you think about the ability of, of models to forecast and determine these sorts of decisions? Uh, well, I mean, in general, uh, the more complicated a problem you, you try to address with a model, the, the mere fact that you have some set of mathematical relationships that are thrown into computer code and, you, you know, you, you feed in the, the data and outcomes and answer, it doesn't somehow magically reduce the complexity of the problem. Um, that's one important point. So. Um, there, there's frequently this kind of magic box view of models that as long as the guy is a quote-unquote expert and he's built a model, then you can give him a problem of any complexity whatsoever and he can come up with a reasonable answer. And clearly in doing something like projecting the, the structure of the whole economy, the whole energy industry, you know, 30 years out, 40, 50 years out. That's such a tremendously complicated problem. It differs fundamentally from the kinds of models that people actually use on Wall Street to make money uh, because uh, those models that people use to make money are actually tested. They're the, the people who engage in speculation based on models, and that's, that's a whole category on, uh, of speculation on its own, those people will actually make and lose money based on the accuracy of their models. The, the gentleman you mentioned before, uh, the, you know, the, the researcher at Stanford and some guy in some think tank and some government bureaucrat um, or some, some Fed bureaucrat, for instance, when they put together their models, they're in a completely different situation in that they rarely stand to, to make uh, you know, distinct economic gains and losses based on the accuracy 
of the detailed predictions of their model. They're in a position where they gain or lose based on how many papers they publish or how many reports they submit to their bureaucrat bosses um, or all kinds of other factors, all kinds of potentially political factors that have nothing really to do with the accuracy of their models. So there's a whole class of people who build models and some of them may be very bright and produce very, very good models, but we stand uh, in a relationship with them which is very different in how we stand with respect to people who are actually using models to make or lose money and are kind of living and dying by their models. The other guys who are producing reports and writing papers and getting things published, um, they don't face the same kinds of incentives to actually have their models, one, be accurate, and to two, be kind of rational in assessing whether their model is even in the ballpark of being able to handle the kind of problem that they're presented with. So making macroeconomic predictions 50 years out, no one on Wall Street uh, would, would really take a model like that seriously. I mean, it, if you walked into a hedge fund and said, I have a model that's going to predict what the macroeconomic situation is going to be like in 40 years, and I think you should give me a couple million dollars uh, to, to bet on some derivatives based on this model, I mean, people would literally laugh at you it would be so ridiculous, which is a suggestion that when people actually have money on the line, the people who do have money on the line and, and have some general experience with these things, they, they don't really take seriously some of these projects that uh, people in government or, or people in academia uh, are a little more blasé about in terms of one's ability to make reasonable predictions. Could you elaborate a little more on the issue of, of complexity? Because it is important to understand the, the type of problem one is, is undertaking in saying, I can figure out this optimal allocation of economic resources. Because w with this professor and with the UN, they're talking about policies that are forced on us. They're not just giving us advice about, hey, I got a good place to put a windmill. Uh, yeah, exactly. So um, now when you're in the situation where you're pulling the strings and, uh, and you know, you've got the force of law behind you, uh, like I was saying, saying before, you don't really need to be right in order to succeed at your short-term goal, which is to publish a report or to uh, draft a regulation that's simply going to be enacted and enforced on people, there's no real, and this is typical of political processes, there's no mechanism that checks to see if it actually works. There's no mechanism that checks to see that, you know, projections of Medicare spending way back in the 60s when the program started, and, uh, you know, those projections being an order of magnitude, if not more orders of magnitude off of what the reality has proven to be, there was no mechanism that checked that whole program, that set of regulations based on what the facts actually came out as being. Um, whereas again, on the markets, when you're addressing problems which uh, people are more confident they can actually come up with distinct, accurate answers to, um, in, in that situation, you are being checked. Your, your profit and loss is being determined by exactly how accurate your model is. And when you, uh, in contrast to the situation where when you kind of have a blank check on a piece of legislation and you're just going to get patted on the back for coming up with something that sounds vaguely reasonable, um, there's no real limit to the amount of complexity that you'll take on if 
you know, you're not particularly incented to have to be right about the answers. And, and I mean, even if even if you had some sort of everyone involved had a quote good incentive in forcing a policy down people's throats, which is a contradiction in terms, they still couldn't come up with anything that resembled uh, the efficiency of a market. Right. Uh, that's that's also true. So there's no there's no, or at least not nearly as much competition. There's one guy, one bureaucrat running some office who's charged with producing a certain model and he's going to produce what he produces. It's not like there are 10 different bureaucrats who are competing to produce the same model. I mean, uh, so, so there's a whole, uh, there's a whole array of, of different differentiating factors between the types of models that, uh, people in markets produce versus the types of models that, uh, people in academia or the government produce. Now I, I want to warn against something, which is that, um, there were definitely cases, for instance, in the recent financial crisis where financial models went completely wrong. Um, now, what people frequently don't mention is the models that were really responsible for the problems in the recent financial contraction, uh, and I'm talking about you know, 2008, 2009, that kind of area, and the whole, the whole housing bu bubble, those models were not the kinds of models that speculators and investors use on the market right now. Those were models that were created by what are called the rating agencies, S&P and Moody's, and these, um, these kind of uh, entities which are not really private organizations. They're, they're kind of technically private organizations, but are given specially uh, designed legal monopolies in the field of ratings. And these guys with their legal monopolies and their kind of this, this little cartel that the government created with these agencies, that was the, uh, the context that gave rise uh, to these, uh, to these uh, models which were proven definitely adequate in, in the uh, financial collapse. Um, the, the models that folks use on Wall Street tend to be much narrower and to tend to take on uh, tasks which are much less complex than things like predict the state of the housing market five years out from now. Those, those were the kinds of questions taken up by the, the rating agency models and, and not the kinds of questions taken up by people who are trying to make money on Wall Street. Got it. Well, as long as we're on the topic of modeling and forecasting, a lot of what you're saying about these uh, central planning type models or these models that take on an inordinate degree of complexity and, and claim a high degree of certainty reminds me a lot of a discussion we had with uh, Dr. Richard Lindzen on episode five uh, about climate change. Are you, are you familiar with any of these climate change models? Because those seem to be taking on in, and I know your background's in physics, that's why I'm asking you. Uh, those seem to be taking on an insane amount of complexity and, and ascribing a huge degree of certainty to their ability to predict all of the different interconnections and their outcome in the climate. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, these climate models, and I, I should say I'm not a you know, specialist in the areas of, uh, that, are, that are addressed by these climate models. I don't have detailed technical uh, knowledge of the models. Um, but I, I do generally know the problems they're trying to solve. I have some sense of the complexity of the problem, which is extremely high complexity. Um, these models are kind of the modern archetype of, uh, of biting off 
way more than you can actually chew um, because the, the economy is an extremely complicated system. The, one of the few systems that we have normal access to kind of on an everyday basis that is equally complex as the economy is the weather and the climate. And these guys trying to predict what the weather is going to be like 100 years from now is on the same order as trying to predict what the economy is going to be like 100 years from now. And if you imagine going back 100 years before today, you know, in, in the year 1911, and trying to get someone to build a model to predict what the economy was going to be like in 2011, it's just obviously absurd. I mean, the whole structure of, you know, the information technology revolution, um, you know, mass uh, transportation through airplanes, um, all these features of the modern economy that we take for granted, that simply was not even conceived in, in 1911. And we're, we face a similar problem if we were to either attempt to predict what the economy or the, the state of the climate is going to be like in any kind of detail uh, in 2011, and uh, rather 2111, um, precisely because these systems are so complex. And in these situations where you have uh, an extremely ambitious model that's trying to, to bite off one of these extremely complex problems, at the very least, what you need is extremely convincing evidence that the model is actually doing the right thing in, in certain kind of toy cases which you can test to, to give you some kind of sense that it's not just some kind of arbitrary uh, you know, block of a million lines of code that's just spitting out garbage. And so what I'm thinking of is that anytime you build a, a big model that has all kinds of you know, uh, wheels moving around inside it, you want to use it to make specific predictions which can actually be verified or disproven in, in the relatively near future. You should predict, you know, say what temperatures should be over a 10-year horizon. If you can't predict what they're going to be over a 10-year horizon, how in the world can I put any confidence in your predictions about what they're going to be over a 100-year horizon? And if you look at the predictions that these guys were putting out 10 years ago, they bear, uh, the, the climate modelers, they bear pretty little relationship with what temperatures actually are right now. Um, so it, as, as an educated layman or a scientist who's even not in this field, the onus is really on these guys who are asserting they've built these magical black boxes. The onus is on them to present some kind of evidence to suggest to me that this ridiculously complicated problem is even anywhere within the ballpark of their attempted solution. And if they can't present that evidence, that evidence which should be pretty convincing and digestible to a non-expert in the field, if they can't do that, then one really doesn't have any reason to take them seriously. Uh, and and for listeners who want more on this issue, since it is a very involved issue, I definitely refer you back to uh, Power Hour episode five with uh, Dr. Richard Lindzen, where he he takes on uh, say one of the central claims, which is that that we know the central thing that drives the climate, and that's the greenhouse effect, and that allegedly leads to catastrophe. And he 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 debunks uh, a lot of the claims associated with that. So we got off onto. Um, onto modeling the future of the climate, but let's, there is, there is a connection, I think. I see two threads throughout the interview. One is that there's an enormous virtue 
in forecasting and in forecasters on the market, people who risk their own money and engage in voluntary trade based on long-range judgment. But there's also an enormous danger in people who claim to be able to forecast the future, often with zero basis or very little basis, and who want to force their verdicts uh, on the rest of us. Eric, is there anything uh, you, else you think our listeners should know, or do you want to elaborate on that before we wrap up? Uh, well, in general, there's just the point that that, uh, I think, as I alluded to before, that is the beauty of these markets, that they are this aggregating mechanism that allows everyone to put his chips on the table. And to the extent that he is personally confident in his own predictions, which is really the best indicator of the value of a model, it's the guy who knows the details about it, whether he's willing to put money on the line, that tends to be the way to really tell whether uh, something has any juice or not, right? And the, the markets are this beautiful aggregating mechanism by which people ba go off their own assessment of their confidence in their models in the case of, uh, you know, speculation and involving models or just in general in, uh, in the case of speculation involving some kind of research into the future supply-demand situation within a market. Um, these markets are these beautiful ways of aggregating all of the experts together and pitting them against each other and coming up with one final number, which is the price of, of, of the contracts that are being traded as the final aggregation, the final sum, um, that's the signal to us, both as consumers and producers, about what the, the kind of the risk-weighted expert opinion is in a certain field. Is there any book you'd recommend uh, to our listeners or book or books um, on this subject for more? I think it's a great summary. Um, you know, uh, there are certainly you, you can read authors like, you know, Jim Rogers, for instance, is uh, someone who I look up to as a commodity speculator. There's that kind of stuff in terms of economic theory, um, you know, there, there's no one book I can think of that particularly addresses this, but, you know, uh, generally I would say, uh, you know, read people like uh, von Mises and Friedrich Hayek on the role of price discovery, because that's what really speculation is about. It's about discovering prices for financial contracts that are essentially predictive in nature. And the process by which markets discover prices, by which all the kind of relevant information in the minds of all the people uh, who want to get involved, how that information is aggregated and condensed into one single number, that price signal, and that one number that's the only thing you need as a consumer or producer who wants to kind of outsource that task of figuring out whether supply is going to increase or decrease or demand is going to increase or decrease. That's the one number you need. And the role of markets in discovering that price is something that those, that those 20th century economic pioneers, uh, guys like Hayek and von Mises, um, those guys really got at the heart of what was going on there. And it's a general economic lesson that's certainly relevant to the category of speculation as well. Yeah, and, and all these these general economic lessons in in say uh, von Mises' human action, uh, as well as Hayek's works, are are relevant both to uh, speculation and all the principles. Of course, are super relevant to understanding energy and, and 
generally the more economics you read that's good, the more you'll have a good handle on some of these energy issues since they many universal principles are at work. Eric, we're uh, out of time, but thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Our hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Thanks again to Dr. Eric Dennis for enlightening us about all things speculation and financial markets. Uh, we're going to do a short wrap-up today since since we took a full hour uh, on the interview. And I, I really, during the interview, got to say uh, most of what I wanted to say on this issue anyway. And I, I think the major points came out clearly. The the most important thing from my perspective is just realizing, once again, the virtue of private free market speculation and the forecasting that involves, but also the danger and vice of coercive, what we can call speculation, of, of different kinds of central planners and bureaucrats making often what are arbitrary or impossible predictions and shoving them down our throats. And with that, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. I hope you learned something. And if you did and think it's important information, tell your friends, tell your colleagues about it, whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything but spam. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail, you can send it to alex at alexepstein.com. And to subscribe to this podcast and to subscribe to my monthly newsletter with even more energy goodness, go to facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy. Facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, which has all the links you need. And we're also approaching 1,000 likes on Facebook. So definitely help us get there and beyond. Last time I checked, Greenpeace is at 900,000. So we've got a lot of catching up to do in terms of fighting for free market energy. Um, Let's see. Next month, we'll be back with another exciting topic and guest. Um, I'm pretty sure it'll be global warming related. But until then, I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour is a TJ DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only.